Peace be with you. Uh, please indulge me uh, for a few moments and, and, and help finish these expressions, okay? So we're going to run through them. Uh, wow, it's raining cats and dogs. Okay. Well, an apple a day keeps the dogs away. Right. Oh, you're good. Okay, that person, oh, they live on the wrong side of Right. Okay. A penny saved is a penny earned. Okay. You win some, you lose some. Okay. Desperate times call for Right. You know, when we think of uh, desperate measures, you know, maybe some examples might come to mind. We think of the kind of the end of the, end of the football game, the long kind of, you know, Hail Mary pass, you know. It's kind of a desperate measure to try to get on the board, uh, maybe get back in the game at the end of a game. Uh, maybe someone who's in real desperate financial shape, uh, and they think, really, there's no way I can get out of this. The only recourse I might have is to rob a bank, you know, someone, something like that. Uh, someone who's really in a desperate situation, there's some sort of uh, desperate uh, measure. Uh, well, we are, are, are living in time, desperate times, I think, in some ways. Uh, not in all ways, but certainly in some ways. And I think some of us are trying to wrestle with that and think through that. And we can think of that globally. You know, what's, what's happening uh, around the world with markets, nations, we think of war. Uh, that's really a desperate situation. Uh, we can think of things happening in our own country. And there's many good things uh, in our country, but there's troubling things sometimes, whether it's certain kinds of legislation or everything else. You know, we can think, okay, wow, things are really changing. And uh, all of this is outside of what you may be personally experiencing in your household or maybe in the church sometimes or maybe in a friendship or at work, whatever it happens uh, to be. We, these can feel like uh, desperate times. But uh, I kind of want to frame today's text like this is that Jesus we could say that he was also living in, in some ways in, in desperate times because it was a really hard world to live in. So uh, the Jewish people are living under Roman oppression, and uh, you know, there's heavy taxation, uh, there's threat of violence and war, there was no kind of you know, judicial system, at least not like we experience today. Um, it was brutal uh, to live uh, that time in the world. So uh, so many children died in childbirth. Many mothers died giving birth to a child. Uh, there, many people died from diseases uh, because there was really no medical care system, not like we have today, certainly not modern medicine. There were so many things that made life difficult back there. Most people did not live beyond their 40s. The majority of people did not live into their 40s. So that was the world generally. And then you look at the situation of Jesus. Now, he's Jesus, but this is really an intense period in his life, because when you get to chapter 13 in Mark's gospel, we're really just on the verge of his own uh, torture and crucifixion. Like, it's going to be horrific. He's going to be betrayed by people around him. He's going to be increasingly alone, and he knows this is all coming. So in light of all this, Jesus gives us a new command. It is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So with that in mind, I'd like to reframe this expression. Desperate times call for loving measures. See, because it's interesting because as we go through uh, life and experience different hardships, we can think we can buy into these sorts of ways of thinking in the world. Desperate times call for desperate. Yeah, I get that. But really, Jesus, in the desperate world in which he lived, in the desperate situation in which he found himself on the verge of his torture, crucifixion, and death and betrayal, what does he come along? What does he say? Hey, okay, so basically this is, things are going crazy. Let's run for the hills? No. Does he say, let's take out our swords and fight? No, he actually specifically speaks against that. Uh, he gives them a new commandment to love one another 
as he has loved them. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to explore this text uh, from John chapter 13. And we're going to talk about what is meant by biblical love. And we're going to talk about it, hopefully in a pastoral way, because I recognize that as we go through a text like this, it's a high calling. And so we're going to, okay, what does Jesus actually mean? How might we be loving to people in the way that he loved us, uh, even when we're going through difficulty or might find it a bit of a challenge, okay? And here's what I also want you to do. So as we go through the text, and I'll have it on the screen, and and maybe you're following in the app or you've got your Bible, um, think, okay, as we go through the text, and then I'm going to present seven practical considerations that we might, I think, love in this faithful biblical way. Think, okay, what is the Holy Spirit communicating to me this morning that I need to pay attention to? So God works through the proclamation of his word, which is what we're doing now, through his scriptures, which he does. And so, you know, if you're open to it, like the Holy Spirit, I think, will communicate us to us in these moments. And so maybe there's one thing, two things, maybe there's more than two things, but something is going to jump out at you. They think, okay, wait a second, the Holy Spirit is communicating that to me, and this is what I need to hear from my particular walk right now. So please be open to that, okay, as we, as we go through. So we're going to open the Scriptures to John chapter 13, and we've been going line by line, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John, right? This is one of the apostles, one of the disciples. He's one of the intimates. So trusted is John, and I just think this is a good reminder, that as Jesus is bleeding and dying on the cross, and and Mary is standing there at the foot of the cross, uh, Jesus asks John, the author of this Gospel, to take care of his own mom. So you don't ask that of someone whom you don't trust and whom you don't have a good relationship with. So he's really one of the intimates. Um, So... So that's who, who the text is written by. Um, remember that we're in Der- Jerusalem for the Passover festival. We've talked about that. The, immediate, the story immediately preceding this is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? So that's kind of the context of what we're about to experience. This, this teaching, as I have loved you, he's just washed their feet. Uh, and so one of the ways that we talked about that last week was we contrasted that kind of living uh, with what our modern society understands as success. And one of the phrases to... Think through success is upward mobility, right? You've, you've got, you're upwardly mobile. You're doing the right social things. You're saying the right things. You've got the right letters piled behind your name. You look a certain way, the right friends, the right influence, power, blah, blah, blah. In contrast, we, we leverage that phrase by Henry Nouwen, downward mobility. Downward mobility. And Jesus gives us that example of humble servanthood. And so uh, Judas has just left, right? And so uh, John and Peter know that that Judas is the betrayer. Jesus tells him to leave and to do what he has to do quickly. And so Jesus is left there at this meal with the 11 disciples. And the next four and a half chapters are Jesus speaking with them, giving these powerful words. And so it's sometimes called the farewell discourse. And what you find in the Bible, uh, and sometimes in in just your own life you've experienced this, when someone's about to die, they they say certain things, um, a parting message in a way. So this is one of the ways we can think about the words uh, of Jesus. So uh, we're beginning at chapter 13, uh, verse 31, reading from the ESV. When he had gone out, I mean Judas, out of the room, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In Isaiah 42, God says that he does not share his glory with anyone else. So what's this about? Well, Jesus is God come to us in human form. So this is another one of those many passages that talk about his divinity. He is you know, God is glorified in him because he is, you know, God come to us in the flesh. If God is glorified in him, verse 32, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus says, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, it's interesting. He here calls them, uh, calls them little children. Some translations will say children. Um, Jesus uh, means different things by the different titles he uses. So in chapter 15, he'll call them friends. And so that's a certain feel to that. Here, children. He's not being uh, condescending. Uh, really, this is emphasizing his care for them and his instruction for them, right, as an elder to, to a child. So that's, what, well, that's what's going on there. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Is he referring to heaven? Is he referring to his, his painful death on the cross? We're not totally sure. Verse 34, here it is. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So a couple of things I want to highlight here. So it says a new commandment. So think of the word commandment. Um, it's one of those religious words that we hear a lot, right? So it's almost like you stop hearing it because you hear it so much. Uh, but think of the context of war. So a commanding officer gives commands. He doesn't give advice. And so it's not going to go well for the troops, for anyone else, right? or the war, the side, if it's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe not. No, the commanding, you do what he says uh, because it's a part of this larger strategy. And I think we just need that reminder. So Jesus is giving a commandment to them, not just nice advice, advice. Oh, maybe do this if you want to. You should do that. A new commandment. Now, the word new might have been a surprise because these are the commandments of God. These are ancient, centuries and centuries old. So they value these, Jesus and the apostles, they're Jews. And so they value the Torah, the teachings of God. You know, they, they want all this. They value all this. And so what do you mean something new? Okay, so what, is, what does Jesus mean? And here it is, that you love one another. Okay, now, um, that doesn't sound totally new, actually, um, because if we're familiar with the Old Testament, we know that this comes up in various places. Even the greatest command, you know, in part quotes Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19.18, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So we've heard this before, even the, even the Ten Commandments, right? So the first four commandments, really, we can, we can think about that's part of our love for God, and the last six are our love for one another. So this isn't totally new, Jesus. So what are you talking about? Love one another, and this is kind of the meat and potatoes that he adds to this. This is the particular quality. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So he basically says, okay, the love, you know, okay, this is something that can be so general, uh, you can add this warm and cozy feeling. No, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And the context is that he's washed their feet. Not just of the 11, but Judas, who is there. And remember, we talked about the 48 minutes. And he's there, and he, he, this, is, this is Jesus. He is, he is the one through whom everything has been made, we learned in chapter 1. Through Jesus, the, the stars in the sky. Through Jesus, the mountains and the oceans in their place. Through Jesus, human life is created. And so this Jesus takes off his outer garments, he puts a towel around his waist, he gets down on his knees, pours water into a basin, and he cleans out the gunk from the toes of Judas, right? So this is, he's given us an example of humble servanthood, right? So that's in mind when he says, as I have loved you, this is immediately the story that has just uh, preceded that one. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is interesting. So it's also about evangelism in a sense, so that other people will know something about Jesus based on the love that we have for one another. Now, what does it not say? It doesn't say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have supreme knowledge. No. Now, we're supposed to gain a knowledge. The Scripture says that it's good. 
But that's not really the primary thing by which other people will know that we are followers of Jesus. It doesn't say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have the capacity to explain every doctrine perfectly. Now, doctrine is important. Without it, we go off the rails and chaos ensues. No, that's not the primary. Love is the primary thing by which others uh, will know. He doesn't say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a perfect picture, picture perfect life. It doesn't say that. It says love. Now, what I'd like to do here for a few moments is define love. Because if we don't define what the New Testament means by love, then we're going to get confused. We're supposed to love each other like Jesus. Okay, but what, is, what does the word mean? So we're going to take a moment to, to uh, define it a little bit. And for those of you who have you know, spent time in the scriptures and done Bible studies and you've, got, you've read videos or listened to podcasts about this, you get it. Um, this is this a verb here, agapao, as a noun, agape. It occurs over 140 times in the New Testament. But what does it actually mean? I think this is a helpful a definition. To love someone in this way, in the biblical New Testament sense, to love someone in this way means, first, acknowledging that they are made in God's image, B, pursuing God's best for them, C, often in a self-sacrificial way. So this is what I think is faithful to that wider kind of witness and things that are going on. To love someone in this way means acknowledging they are made in God's image. So all people, Genesis 127, are made in the image of God. That's why everyone is due respect and dignity and worth. It's because everyone is made in the image of God. You, people in your household, your neighbor, the one you like, the one you don't, the person at school, at work, your enemy, everyone is made in the image of God. Second, it's pursuing God's best for them. So this means um, action. It involves doing something. So clearly we're here resisting any idea that love has to do with a feeling. You can love someone authentically and biblically and not feel very nice about them. It's not about your feelings, okay? Pursuing God's best for them. Notice the word God's best for them. And I think that's important because there are times when, again, because of our culture, because of our time, we can think that it just means agreeing with everything about them. No. What is God's best? What is God's will? And we would love for someone to experience the goodness of what that is like, right? Pursuing God's best for them, and you're doing something. Uh, actually, on this, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a great word here. I wrote it down. He says, love asks nothing in return, but seeks those who need it. I think that's good. Love asks nothing in return, but seeks those who need it. So, because again, because of our culture, there's this sense of reciprocity. How many of us in this eternal sinful state, we think, you know what, part, we may not admit it out loud, but you know, if I do something for someone else, they had better do something for me or else they don't appreciate it, right? I'm going to love someone, but we've got this sense of reciprocity. Well, tit for tat, if I do that, you're going to scratch my back too. Love in a kind of a pure self-sacrificial way is about them. And then it's got that self-sacrifice. And Jesus often um, talks about this and he showcases this, and this will be perfectly demonstrated for us on the cross, right? right? His, his love for us is self-sacrificial, and so that's uh, what it is. Now, another place where this is um, demonstrated is 1 uh, Corinthians uh, 13. So this is the famous passage about love, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And it's often read at weddings. It was read at my wedding. Maybe it was read at some of your weddings for those of you who are married. And it's not primarily about romantic love. And so when we hear that love is patient, love is kind, we can think, oh, this is about romance. You can apply it to that. It's totally legitimate to use it in those contexts. But really, it's about this New Testament agape love. Here's what it says. This is Paul fleshing out what we're talking about when we're talking about loving one another. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with or in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's a beautiful um, way to think about it. And, and, and then he says, Jesus says, you know, by this, people will know that you are my disciples, right? And uh, that's about that evangelism uh, piece. Uh, they will know we are Christians by our love. You know, I think of that great hymn by Peter Schultes, which we will sing after this because uh, it fits so well. They will know we are Christians by our love. But part of our motivation for this, recall, is that God has, has given this love to us. So uh, John, who wrote the, the gospel, he also wrote some letters in the New Testament. And uh, one of them is First John in, in chapter 4, verse 9. He says that we love one another because we've been loved first by God. And so because we've experienced, without, without the intervention of God, without the love of God, all of us are hellbound. Without the intervention and love of God reaching into our lives, responding in faith, we are all hellbound. We are, our sin is so great and deep, and that's one of the great challenges of our time. We've, we, people don't talk about sin. They underestimate the gravity of it. And so in Christ, God has reached out for us and that's such a beautiful, wonderful gift that he gives us the promises in heaven and eternity and forgiveness and peace with God. And so because we receive that incredible gift that we can never earn on our own, it flows out of us. Loved people love people, right? Loved people love people. Continuing, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There's a bit of an irony here because Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you, but it's really the other way around. Uh, but it's also a bit of a prophetic statement. So uh, Peter actually will die of martyrdom. So uh, historical records preserve this for us. So after the resurrection and the church is growing and developing, Peter actually is, is martyred. Uh, in Rome under the Emperor Nero. Now, what I'm about to say is a tr certain tradition, it's hard to confirm, but there's a, 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 a tradition from fairly early that says that Peter was so aware of his own unworthiness to be martyred like Jesus, because he was going to be crucified. So a lot of people were crucified. He, he was so aware of his own unworthiness, he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. So feet at the top, head at the bottom. So it's hard to confirm that one, but, but Peter does undergo radical change. So as I go through the Gospels, he's kind of bumbling along. He becomes a lion of courage after the resurrection because he has seen Jesus alive. Okay? Verse 38, Jesus answered, I will, you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. How hard would it have been for Peter to hear that? So hard. He's with him. He's journeying with him. All these things are happening. Uh, they've got this friendship, uh, this discipleship. I can imagine how that must have cut to his heart. Think of you being in wartime. You're fighting along someone, a really good friend, and you, you've been through battles, and you've seen friends die, and you've experienced victories, and you become so bonded, and you talk about life back home. And then your friend says to you, before we have supper tomorrow night, you're going to deny that you know me to the enemy. Think of how, think how devastated you would be. But this actually, of course, is what happens. And so, Peter, so, so Jesus says this to Peter, first of all, to instruct him. And I think 
Um, when it happens, although it will be devastating and although he will cry, uh, I think one of the things that it teaches us is that, um, uh, first of all, if we just kind of reject God and rely on our own strength, uh, horrible things happen. <laughs> and, and Peter is evidence of that. Uh, but also, I think Peter, uh, so Jesus says it to Peter to encourage him because after it occurs, he will remember back to this event and, oh, right, Jesus has foreknowledge. Jesus knows things ahead of time because he is the author of time. Okay. So we're going to end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's reflect on Jesus' new commandment. Uh, desperate times call for loving measures. Uh, and Jesus, and the same is true for us uh, today. And so you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to pay attention to what of these seven things or something from the text God may be communicating specifically to you. Okay? The first is this. <clears throat> I'm just going to go through them. Accept your calling to a high, high standard. And we just need to name it. Like, this is, this is hard. And I remember uh, Claude Cox... And I, you know, from here in the congregation, the leader of the Thursday Bible study, and we were talking in one of the Bible studies about this. Is there any way around this? Like, can we soften this somehow? Is this one of those passages that you can't take literally, you know? Um, And so we we started to think about it. How many times this type of love comes up over and over again? Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Faith, hope, and love. These three abide. The greatest of these is what? Love, right? So, you know, know, take up your cross. It comes up time and time. So we just want to acknowledge that. We want to acknowledge that. It is a high, high calling. Second, even though you will fail repeatedly, Know that your failure does not disqualify you. And I think this is really important. And, uh, um, you know, as, as Romans uh, 3.23 reminds us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true for me. It's true for you. Every single day we fail. And maybe there's someone here who really needs to hear this. That even though you fail repeatedly, just know that your failure does not disqualify you. And so we need to remind ourselves of what the gospel is central to the Christian faith. It's not moral improvement. It's not, oh, be a nice person, do a bunch of nice things, and you'll get into heaven. No. It's based on what Jesus has done for us, not what we have done for us. Okay? And that is so central. And I need to say this because people can go their whole lives, sometimes reading the Bible, going to church, singing songs, saying prayers even, and not get what the gospel is, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Our righteousness is his. Like, he gives his righteousness to us. By his grace, we receive it in faith. And so he pays the consequence for our disobedience on the cross. And so we're not given peace and forgiveness with God because we're so morally awesome. But because Jesus is, he gives that to us and we receive it as a gift. This is central to the gospel, the great exchange, giving his life for ours. True faith never brags. It clings to the accomplishments of Christ. This is part of the reason why he's so valuable to us. He's more than a moral teacher. He has given his life for ours, quite literally. We cling to the accomplishments of Christ. So when we stand before God one day, it's not our own righteousness that's going to make us on good terms with him. It's the righteousness of Jesus that he has given to us. Remember that robe exercise? The robes of righteousness? Okay. Here's the thing. We keep stumbling and falling, but the path on which we run is called love. So we keep stumbling and falling, but the path on which we run is called love. The track on which we run is called love. And the Holy Spirit helps us along. Okay? Now, here's an example, and I've shared this before, but Derek Redman was an Olympic runner, and it was 1996, and he was running the 400-meter race, which I think is the hardest race. It's a sprint all the way around the track. 
And uh, he, it's one of his heats, and he's out there. Now, think of all the training that goes into the Olympics, and he's running around, and he's out in front, and bam, he goes down. He falls. <gasps> Everyone gasps. He snapped his Achilles tendon. Ouch, that's really hard. He snaps his Achilles tendon. He goes down, and all the other runners run ahead of him, and so he loses the heat. Um, but he gets up, and he starts to kind of struggle and drag his leg behind him. I can't imagine. So he's got, and people start to like, uh, we're not sure he's going to make it, but people start to cheer for Derek Redman, right? But it's, it's kind of debatable whether or not he's going to get across the finish line. And so all of a sudden, someone somehow jumps over the rail in the stands, gets past security, and runs out to help him, puts their arm around him, and helps him to the finish line, and people are on their feet clapping. That man, of course, is Derek's father. He knows everything he's been through. I just think that's a helpful way for us to think about what is going on right? The, the, we keep stumbling and falling, but the track on which we run is called love, and the Holy Spirit helps us along. Here's an example, too. I think this is really helpful about how the fact that our failures, time and time again, do not disqualify us. So in this story today, in the text, Peter, what does he do? He's going to deny Jesus before the cock crows, and he's going to deny him three times. I don't know the guy. Who are you talking about? So in Jesus, and that will happen later in the gospel, we'll come across that story. Jesus is in his hour of need. This is pain. This is torture. This is abandonment. This is loneliness. All the things. And Peter says, don't know him. Now, you would think that would disqualify you. What happens in chapter 21? And we'll come to this passage as well. After the resurrection, Peter's there. Jesus, he says, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And lambs and and sheep are a metaphor for God's people. He gives Peter a leadership position in the church. Your failure does not disqualify you. Third, love in practical ways. And I think we just need to reflect on this because, again, we've got these modern sense of like, okay, it's about this feeling. It's not a warm and fuzzy feeling, right? We've got to love in practical ways. Uh, Larry Osborne has a fantastic quote, <laughs> and I want to share it with you. He's a pastor in America. This is what he says. People who are knee-deep in the sea of alligators... Don't have much interest in hearing someone's creative plan to drain the swamp someday. They just want another shotgun and they want it right now. I don't know what you think about hunting, but I get that. I don't want the- theoretically to hear about something that's going to happen in the future. I want a shotgun, I want it right now. Um, and I think that's, that's so poignant because when someone's in need, they just need some practical help. And that's an expression of love. And what is the example? It's Jesus. He washed their feet. He didn't say, you know, you should love one another. Let's go have an ice cream. He washed their feet. Fourth, love to point others to Jesus. Now, love serves a purpose. So when we love someone, when you serve them in practical ways, when you've got a heart of compassion for someone, you, uh, it, it benefits them, absolutely. Um, it benefits yourself sometimes because it makes you feel good. Not always. Depends on the situation. Depends on the personality. So you're not always going to feel good, but you will often feel good. It will often be a sign of obedience, a sign of faithfulness to God. But one of the things this teaches us is that this Jesus-styled love will actually direct other people toward him. And I think this should be a motivating factor for us. Do you know someone who you would love to know Jesus? Do you know someone who you would love uh, for them to experience what peace with God is like? Is there someone in your life that you would love... um, for them to just have a renewed sense of meaning in their lives of what it is to, to walk in the footsteps of a risen Savior? Do you, do you have someone in your life who you would love for them to receive the eternal salvation and promises of God? 
I do. Yes, 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 yes. Now, it's all a work of God, and God does these things. And, and, and this process usually has several different uh, parts and pieces, but love is a central part of the equation. So there's an old adage. It's this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, I, I, get, I, don't, I get where that's coming from. Um, it's not totally accurate all the time, uh, but there is something to that. If you have a heart of compassion for people, they're going to be more open to what you believe and what you might have to say. Okay, next, number five. If we love one another as Christ loved us, we will all benefit from each other's love. I think we just need to say this. Um, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the world around us is getting more hostile to people of faith. Notice that? It's happening more and more. Um, if, if you've got lukewarm beliefs, and don't really, it, it doesn't matter, you're going to blend in. But if you actually have genuine beliefs in the Word of God and what Christ teaches and how we're going to live differently as a result, then you will experience more and more hardship. Uh, persecution is going to rise, uh, including here in Canada. But here's the thing. Increasing winds outside the church should fan the flame of love inside the church. Increasing winds outside the church should fan the flame of love inside the church because we are to love one another. And so do we keep it here? Do we keep, no, it, it, it goes outwards, right? We love people around us, our neighbors, our enemies, all that sort of stuff, absolutely. But we are going to benefit from it ourselves within the church. And we help each other, encourage one another, build each other up. First Thessalonians 5. In The Scent of Love, Keith Miller describes the early Christians. Something was so powerful about how they lived. Through Jesus, the disciples and early followers had discovered the secret of community, he writes. Someone would be walking down a back alley in Ephesus or Corinth and see things that didn't make any sense at all. Something about a man and an execution on a tree and visitations. But there was a quality about the way that these people talked to each other, cried together, laughed together, touched each other. The way they interacted with each other so oddly compelling that strangers passing by would be drawn to them. It was as if the scent of love had drifted down the alley and could draw people like bees to a flower. And people started to say, I don't understand this yet, but I want in. Sixth, simplify your life so you can seize opportunities to serve. This is the second last one. I just think this is important. I'm going to be uh, interviewing a professor at Tyndale named Sarah Hahn in January for the podcast. So for this church's podcast, for my own, it'll be on both. Uh, and she does work around evangelism and missions and dis modern discipleship. She teaches about these things. And she's working on a book right now. And we're going to talk about it. And uh, she says that the biggest one of the biggest barriers that modern people in Canada face when it comes to loving one another and seizing those opportunities is busyness. It's busyness because we have cluttered our minds and our schedules and our lives so much. Some opportunity comes up to actually help someone in a practical way. And just like, I'm too tired too busy. And this is a work in progress for all of my, all of my, I'm the first one to say it's a work in progress for me, and this is something I always got to be working on, because I'm doing lots of stuff. I'm sure lots of you are doing lots of stuff, too. So what we're, we need to do is, okay, maybe, maybe we just need, this isn't about a guilt trip, it's just about, okay, what's reality in my life? And, and as I make my schedule going forward, am I going to be someone who kind of leaves enough space for discipleship when opportunities come up? Because if we never have that time or space, we're going to be disobedient. Seven, finally, be encouraged at the loving character of God. 
This is just something to be encouraged by because I, I just think we need to remind her once in a while what God is like. You know, God is many things. God has many attributes. God is, is merciful. God is holy. There are some times when God exercises his wrath uh, on sin and, and other things. Uh, but the very heart of all that, those things aren't an opposite. Those are all a part of the fundamental, very center of God's character and heart, which is love. So this is the God we serve, right? So who is God? This is God. He is love, 1 John 4, 8, right? So this is just the, who are we giving our lives to? It's the God of love. Who are we following? It's the God of love. Who's going to transform the world? It's the God of love. Who is worth giving your life to? It's the God of love. So let me do a quick recap. One, accept your calling to a high, high standard. Two, even though you will fail repeatedly, know that your failure does not disqualify you. Three, love in practical ways. Remember the alligators in the swamp? Four, love to point others to Jesus. Five, if we love one another as Christ loved us, we will all benefit from each other's love. Six, simplify your life so you can seize opportunities to love. Seven, be encouraged at the loving character of God. So let's try a couple of these expressions one more time. It's raining cats and an apple a day keeps the desperate times call for loving measures. Absolutely. You got it. Yeah. When something like oil in the world is in short supply, it becomes more valuable because there's not as much of it as there should be, maybe. The same thing is true for love. Final thought, Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, says this. It's a prayer. God, perfume us with holiness and make our hearts a map of heaven. Perfume us with holiness and make our hearts a map of heaven. Amen.